It's all right. Uh, let's uh, open in prayer quick. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as your people, to worship you this morning and to hear your word preached. Lord, I pray that this time together as we uh, wrap up our study of the Ten Commandments this morning would be um, beneficial for us, that we would see how great you are and how small we are, and that we would see how much we need you, and that we would see um, what we ought to do in our lives to live for you. Lord, I pray that you bless our time together today as we finish our discussion of your Ten Commandments. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. All right, so according to the title of today, we're on part two of the Tenth Commandment. All right, because we talked about the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, last week. And so we'll do just a little bit of review of that and then wrap up our thoughts on the Tenth Commandment. But really what we're going to do this morning is wrap up our discussion, not just of the Tenth Commandment, but of all of the commandments as a whole. Right? Because this is our last session on the Tenth Commandment, as you've, uh, on the commandments at all, as you've heard me say in the prayers we opened here. So we are finishing that series today, and at the end today I'll tell you what uh, we're going to do next, um, next week and then the week after. So firstly, last week one of the things that we did was we looked at the meaning of the Tenth Commandment, trying to understand uh, the, the, the technical sides of what coveting is and how we may be guilty of it and, and so on. And one of the things we talked about was how Calvin really masterfully, I think, made this distinction between desire and plan when it comes to coveting. And later theologians filled in the gaps when they said um, that a step between here is nurturing oops, nurturing the desire and the deed. And so there are really multiple steps involved. Uh, sorry, I'll get out of your way so you can all see it. There are multiple steps involved when it comes to coveting. The first thing is a desire. you got to have a desire if you're going to covet something. And usually this desire is for something that is not your own. It's for something that God has forbidden from you to have. And so that could you know, take, take the um, form of being something that God has forbidden in general. We're, we're, we're desiring something that God does not want us to have. Or we may be desiring something that someone else has. So it could be two, two things there. The first thing in coveting is desiring something. But the desire itself is not always sinful alone. It's what follows from that desire, the nurturing of that desire for something that's not, that we're not supposed to have. It's the dwelling on it, the imagining of ways that we could get it, that sort of thing. And then, as Calvin rightly said, the next step is the plan. It is, in our minds, figuring out ways to get that thing that we've been desiring for any period of time. To, trying to figure out how we might acquire it from somebody. And what coveting has in view is these three parts, if you will. These three parts. Because coveting does not always end in actually executing the plan to get the thing. We could live our entire lives coveting something that someone else has and never actually act on those desires. But it often does lead to the actual deed. And we saw that last week with numbers of examples of people coveting in the Old Testament and where that word is used in various Old Testament historical accounts. And so that is what we have in view when it comes to coveting. When the Bible says we shall not covet, 
our neighbors X, Y, and Z. This is what it has in view, these kinds of things um, particularly. And then um, we also talked about, yeah, we talked about the historical accounts of coveting, where the word to covet is used in various places. We talked about um, Achan when he coveted the gold and silver in the city of Jericho, and that caused him to desire that gold and silver. He nurtured that desire, came up with a plan to hide the gold and silver from Jericho under his tent, and then he actually went about and did it. And the result was death brought upon him and his family by Joshua and the rest of the people of Israel. So coveting is a very serious thing. That's why we have a commandment about it, because it deals with sort of the internal operations of the mind and the heart that occur before the commandment, you shall not steal, takes place, or before the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, takes place. Because we can covet someone else's stuff, which causes us to break the commandment about stealing, or we could covet someone else's spouse, or someone else's girlfriend, or, or boyfriend, or something, whatever, and then that causes us to commit the, the uh, violation of the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So this is a profoundly internal commandment, and, and it's one of the hardest ones for us to deal with, because it's easy sometimes to point to someone and say, you broke the adultery commandment, or you broke the stealing commandment, because those are very much outward. They're not only outward. We talked about that. But they're very much outward. But the coveting commandment is very internal, and it's hard to pinpoint it to people and say, you're coveting, or you're coveting. Sometimes we can, but oftentimes it's something that's in the heart. And so that's why it's so important to teach it and to understand it so we can guard our own hearts and keep ourselves from coveting. And that's why what we're going to do right now as we finish up our discussion of the Tenth Commandment is we're going to look at the Westminster Larger Catechism really quickly. Now, I don't know if you have looked at the Larger Catechism's questions related to the Tenth Commandment, but if you do, you're going to find they're very short. The Ninth Commandment about bearing false witness, there's like multiple pages of stuff that's required and forbidden. It's huge, one of the biggest. You get to the Tenth Commandment, and in my edition of the large, larger catechism, it's like three lines. What is required in this commandment? Three lines. What is forbidden? Three lines. So there's not as much content here to go through, but it's just as powerful. So what I want to do is I just want to look at question 147 when it asks, what is required in the Tenth Commandment? You shall not covet. And the reason I want to look at this one is because when we deal with this commandment, we need to not just be aware of what is forbidden, which is what we talked about a lot last week, but we need to be aware of what is required. Because when we understand what is required in a commandment, what we're doing is we are taking the necessary steps to ensure that we don't violate it. We're taking the necessary steps to build the walls of defense against temptation in this area. And so the question from... 147 in the larger catechism says what is or asks what is required in the 10th commandment it lists three things three things that are required for us and i just want to go through them quickly here the first thing that's required in the commandment you shall not covet is full contentment with our own condition full contentment with our own condition uh, the proof text for this is Hebrews 13.5, which says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. 
For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the reason why this is an important part of what is required in the commandment you shall not covet is it takes the necessary steps to keep coveting from becoming an issue. Because coveting in itself is desiring something, right? It starts with desiring something that is not ours. Which means it starts with discontentment. Not being content with the things that God has actually given to us. And so what do we do to keep this from happening or to do our best to take the necessary steps to set up the guardrails to keep ourselves from falling off the covetous cliff? Well, we foster within us a spirit of contentment with the things that God has given to us. A contentment with our own material condition or whatever other condition that we find ourselves in. We're content with the things that we have. And I know you've, you've been taught you need to be content before, right? This is like preaching to the choir, saying the same thing you've heard a hundred times. But we all have to be reminded of this over and over again because we all are tempted and at times fall into discontentment. And we need to guard that. So full contentment with our own condition, that's the first thing. Second thing is a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor. And that's linked with the third one, which is furthering our neighbor's good. Aside from discontentment, coveting results in an uncharitable attitude toward our neighbor because we're trying, we're, we, we want something that they have. And we may even be planning to take that thing away from them or to figure out a way to get it somehow. That in itself results from an uncharitable disposition toward our neighbor, an unloving disposition toward our neighbor. And so if we foster a charitable disposition toward our neighbor, a loving, um, loving, not feelings, a loving, um, what's a word here? Okay, a loving frame of the whole soul, a loving attitude toward someone, that is going to then erect another guardrail against breaking this commandment. Because if we love someone, we don't want to take their stuff from them. And we don't fantasize about taking their stuff from them. And so then we further our neighbor's good. That's the third thing. And that is really working to help our neighbor keep their things. Not working in our own minds some kind of fantasy about taking something from someone else. Okay. Now some of you maybe don't struggle with this at all. Some of us maybe just don't we don't think about what other people have and we get jealous and think about how we could have it and then foster plans in our minds. Maybe we don't have that kind of issue, but a lot of people do. And it's a very, very important commandment that we're dealing with here. So we want to know how to deal with it if it ever does come up in our own lives. Okay, so that is very quickly then wrapping up our discussion of the 10th commandment. And we, we did most of it last week. Now, what I want to do the rest of this morning... We've now looked at the Ten Commandments all the way through. With me, we've done the fifth through the tenth. You did the other ones with Grant and and Dr. Hayes earlier on. And Adam, I I think Adam did the first one. That was before I was here. So we've gone now through all the Ten Commandments. And because this is our last session together in this series, what I want to do is instead of focusing on particular commandments and really zeroing in on the details, I want to step away from the, the microscope, if you will, the theological microscope, and look at the Ten Commandments big picture. Look at them as a whole. 
And what I want to do is I want to look at the historical context of the Ten Commandments being given and what that means for us and what it meant for the people of Israel. Because I think sometimes we have a tendency to think about the Ten Commandments outside of their historical context and we forget when they were given and why they were given and the events surrounding their being given by Moses to the people. Okay? So let's look really quickly, if you will turn with me in your Bibles, if you've got them, to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to do something right now called biblical theology. Now, biblical theology doesn't mean theology that's biblical. Okay? That's what I thought it meant at one time. Biblical theology is its own kind of study. It's a, it's a, kind, it's a way of kind of understanding the Bible. And what it does is it looks at specific things in the Bible, specific themes, specific ideas, and it traces those themes throughout the whole of Scripture and watches how they develop and unfold and are made more clear by later revelation of God. So that's kind of what we're going to do here as we look at the Ten Commandments as a whole throughout Scripture. What is going on here in these Ten Commandments? What, what's significant about them? And what I want to do is first I want to look at is, or, sorry, Exodus 19, verse 9. You can follow along here. We're going to read a number of verses. Just to give you some context quickly, you remember that Moses in Exodus 3 met God in the burning bush. And God said, listen, Moses, you're going to go to, to Egypt and you are going to lead my people out of Egypt and you are going to worship me on this mountain. And the mountain that God is referring to is Mount Sinai. And so in Exodus 19... That command of God has now been fulfilled because Moses has gone to Egypt. God was with him. He led the people out of the land of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. And in the uh, very beginning of chapter 19, they arrive at Sinai. And so now here's what happens. Verse 9 of chapter 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Now just to give you a picture of what's going on here, here is a wonderful drawing of a mountain. And this is Mount Sinai. And what is going on here is the people of Israel are down here at the base of the mountain. And God says, I am going to come and I'm going to be on the top of the mountain. I'm going to come down at the top of Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning. And I am going to proclaim my word to the people. Now listen, Moses, here's what you're going to do. 
you're going to come down here to the people of Israel at the base of the mountain, and you are going to consecrate them. In other words, you're going to make them clean. You're going to ceremonially purify the Israelites. They're going to wash their clothes. They're going to wash themselves. They are going to be ritually clean. For this event, when I come to the top of the mountain and proclaim my law to them. Now, the question I had when I first read this passage is, why? Why do the Israelites need to be ritually clean in order to be at the base of the mountain to hear the word of the Lord? And I've wondered that for actually quite a long time until I started taking classes at RTS. And what I discovered in one of my classes in my biblical theology course is that the reason why the Israelites needed to be ritually clean to be at the base of Mount Sinai is because Mount Sinai is a kind of precursor to the tabernacle. Mount Sinai is a kind of precursor to the tabernacle. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I don't know how familiar you are with the structure of the tabernacle as to how it was built and how it operated, but in Exodus 26 through 30, we get a very detailed description of the tabernacle and how it was to be built, all the colors that were associated with what curtains and, and how big everything was supposed to be and so on. And when we map it out, we know that the tabernacle had a, a fence curtain all around it, and then the tabernacle tent itself was in the tent like, like this. Right? And inside... The, the wall, the tent wall surrounding the tabernacle tent was the altar. That's what this is. And the altar was where the people of Israel offered sacrifices. And this whole area here where the sacrifices took place, everything inside the curtain but outside the actual tabernacle tent was called the outer court. And the outer court was a place where all the Israelites could come in. The Israelites could come in to the outer court and offer sacrifices. And the priests would be here and they'd be doing all kinds of things around the altar to offer these sacrifices according to God's law. But that wasn't all that there was to the tabernacle. It wasn't just the outer courts. There was also inside the tent two sections. The bigger section of the tent was called the holy place. And the holy place, which you're seeing here in the tabernacle, is a place only the priests could go. The Israelites themselves, the, the laymen, if you will, were not allowed to go into the holy place. They could only be in the outer court. And inside the holy place, you had things like the menorah and the altar of incense and the table of showbread and those kinds of things. And only the priests could be in there going about their ritual tasks. And then you had a third section, the smaller section of the tabernacle. And the smaller section was called the Holy of Holies. And you know about the Holy of Holies, right? That was the most holy place of the tabernacle and later the temple. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And the only person who could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest. No one else could. And the high priest could only go in the Holy of Holies once every year on what was called the Day of Atonement. 
And the high priest in the Holy of Holies would offer a sacrifice to God and would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was to be an annual payment of sins, if you will, an annual symbol of the payment of sins for the Israelites. And that happened every year. And so you have essentially in the tabernacle three main sections. You have the outer court where all the Israelites were able to be. You have the holy place where only the priests could be. The spiritual leaders of Israel were only allowed to be there. And then you have the Holy of Holies, where only one person was allowed to go. And believe it or not, that's exactly what you have as you look at the account about Mount Sinai. This down here, the base of the mountain, is essentially the outer court of the tabernacle of Mount Sinai. And the side of the mountain that is the slope as you go up and ascend to the top, is the holy place. And the very tippy top of the mountain is the holy of holies, where God most manifests his presence with the people. And what's interesting, look with me really quickly at Exodus 24. Exodus 24, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what uh, is recorded here. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship me from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And you see what's going on there? What God is describing, he's describing three sections of the mountain. One section is where the people have to be. The next section, up closer to the top, but not quite there, is where Nadab and Abihu and Aaron and the 70 elders are allowed to go, the spiritual leaders of Israel. That's the holy place. But only one is allowed to come to the Holy of Holies, and that is Moses. And only he can go there. Now you might say, what does all this have to do with the Ten Commandments? Well, we're getting there. But let's go back to Exodus 19. Again, Exodus 19 is the chapter right before the Ten Commandments are given. So we're building some, some understanding of what's going on here. Look at verse 16 of Exodus 19. So Moses ritually purifies the Israelite people. They get clean, just like they would have to do before they entered the outer court of the tabernacle. So the Israelites are clean. They've entered the outer court, the foot of the mountain, Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, after they're done being purified, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all of the people in the camp trembled. That is exactly the description of what happens when the tabernacle is built and God enters the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Here, God is coming down to the Holy of Holies on Sinai, and it is the same thing. This thick cloud is coming. It's the same thing that happens when Solomon's temple is dedicated and God enters the Holy of Holies there. Uh, Verse 17, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top, and Moses went up. This is, this is a terrifying experience for the people of Israel. I mean, you ought to feel the drama happening just in this account. God, when he ascended to the top of Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments to the people, did not show up casually, quietly, and read the commandments in a monotone voice. You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. No, that's not what happened. This is thundering, lightning, smoke swirling around the mountain, smoke shooting up from the top of the mountain. This is crazy things that are going on here. And Moses comes up. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, people, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. There again we see the people are not allowed to come up here. Only the mediator, only the one person, Moses, can come up to the Holy of Holies. And yet God in his graciousness doesn't just tell Moses the Ten Commandments. No, in a thunderous voice, now in Exodus 20, which we're going to read here, God proclaims the commandments, not to Moses, but to all of the people. And they hear his thunderous voice coming down from the Holy of Holies of the mountain. Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Again, picture these commandments being spoken in a thunderous voice from the top of a mountain while fire is swirling around and lightning is going and smoke is all over the place and it's shooting up and it's filling the whole area. This is a massive catastrophe going on here in terms of the sight. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. 
You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. There the law of God is proclaimed from the Holy of Holies on Mount Sinai, thundering down to the people in the outer courts. And verse 18 records their response. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses you speak to us and we will listen but do not let God speak to us lest we die what was the response of God's covenant people to the annunciation of his law Trembling. Fear. Stepping back and standing far off at a distance. Why? Because the people were in the presence of a holy God. And that holy God had just told them what he required of them as his people. And they were broken. Because as we know, in the testimony of Scripture, or even from looking at our own lives, we as human beings are far from holy. And as we've seen, as we've studied these commandments in in very excruciating detail at times, we have seen that we have not fulfilled them. That there are things about them we never even thought about, maybe. That there are things required in these commandments that seem impossible, and indeed they are impossible for unholy people. And at times I think even we, studying the Ten Commandments, have seen, boy, I don't measure up to these. They are too great. The standards are too high for us. Now they're not too high for a holy God, but they're too high for an unholy people. And I felt that response myself, a, a response of, of trembling and saying, oh man, God, I, I can't believe how much is required of me to be holy. I can't do it. And that's the response of the people here. They hear the word, and it's not just that they're scared of the thunder and the lightning. That's just manifest presence of a holy God. It's the actual reading of the law that they're like, ah, oh, I can't believe it. This is incredible. This is, this is blowing my mind. I have to take a step back from this holy God. He's too much. I can't do it. And we see that they can't do it, even in the later account here. In Exodus 32, just a few chapters later, Moses, actually, in the end of this chapter, Moses goes up for the people, and he receives the rest of the law from God. The people say, we, we don't want to hear this. We can't hear it. Moses, you speak to God and then tell us what he says. Moses goes up there and from, from Exodus 21 all the way to Exodus 32, Moses is receiving the commands from God himself. God is not announcing them to the people. But then in Exodus 32, while Moses is up here in the Holy of Holies, 
speaking with God, hearing the, the rest of God's commands. The people of Israel are down here in the outer courts, and what do they do in Exodus 32? Someone turn there quickly and tell me, what's the heading say in your Bible? Yeah, the golden calf. What did they do in the outer courts of their first tabernacle? Were they doing what God commanded? Were they, were they making sure that the sacrifices were going to be offered rightly or whatever? I mean, the sacrifices hadn't been fully administered yet. But were they doing what they were supposed to do in the outer courts? No. What they did in the outer courts was they assembled for themselves, using gold from Egypt, a golden calf. Violating. The first two of the commandments of God. You shall not make for yourself a graven image, and you shall have no other gods before me. It's a perfect demonstration of the fact that an unholy people cannot do what God commands. They're so quick to disobey. You would think, wouldn't you? Just us as 21st century Americans, if we were there at Sinai seeing all of this crazy stuff going on and smoke and fire and trumpet sounds and God himself telling us the commandments, we would think that we would say, oh, I better listen to these. That's what we would think. But the problem is if we were there, we probably would have done the same thing. Because we're an unholy, (coughs) sinful people who because of our sinfulness are not able to obey God. And so in, in the Sinai tabernacle, the law is proclaimed in the Holy of Holies the people violate it. Now, when the tabernacle is established and and all of the ceremonial law is happening here, where sacrifices are being offered and the, the candles are being lit and the table of showbread is doing its thing and all that in the Holy of Holies and the priest is offering an annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement in this Holy of Holies. What's happening in this Holy of Holies? Well, What's happening is there is now happening a sacrifice in the tabernacle. A sacrifice in this Holy of Holies. It's a lamb being slaughtered and the blood of the lamb being sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant as a symbolic payment of sins for the people. But in Hebrews 10 we read, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. That is, these sacrifices being offered in the Old Testament, they were not actually taking away the sins of the Israelites. What they were doing was they were postponing the wrath of God. In Hebrews 10, we read very clearly, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, but there is the blood of something, of someone, that can take away sin. There is the blood of something, of someone who can be substituted for our blood. Because as Paul says in Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. If we are an unholy people who break God's law, we deserve death. That's why the animal sacrifices were slaughtered. That's why there was death happening. Because it was specifically purposed to be a reminder of sins to the people each year, as it says in Hebrews 10. But there was to come a full sacrifice, something that would take away the sins of the Israelites, something that would take away the sins of God's covenant people, past, present, and future. And that sacrifice that came 
was none other than the Lamb of God, Jesus, who in Romans 3, Paul says, was offered up on the mercy seat called Calvary. And his blood was shed so that we might be forgiven of our sins. But you see, that's not all that the gospel entails, is it? Because we don't just need our sins forgiven. We actually need to be perfectly obedient to be saved. We need perfect obedience. And guess what? We can't do that either. We still can't follow God's law. Even after we have sacrifices to to save us. Even after Israelite, they had sacrifices all the time. They couldn't take away sins. We need more than just the removal of sins. We need perfect obedience. And that's why there's this whole concept in Paul's theology in the scriptures of double imputation. That it's not just that our sins are paid for by Christ, but that we are then, when we're justified, credited with Jesus' perfect obedience. That he merited in his perfect life, where he perfectly followed all these Ten Commandments. And we get that obedience. And that is the obedience by which God then justifies, by which God then sees us as righteous. Our sin is transferred to Jesus. And Jesus' perfect obedience is transferred to us in justification. And so what we see in the Holy of Holies here, and the Holy of Holies of Calvary, if we think of that as a kind of place of a mercy seat where sacrifices are being offered, we see the law is being proclaimed. The law is still a good thing. The law being proclaimed here showed the Israelites what was required of them and how they failed to do it. Just like Jesus' death shows us what was required of us and how we failed to do it. But it also shows to us something else. When the Israelites looked at the sacrifices that were being offered, they were then reminded of God's grace. Because God didn't have to give them these sacrifices. God didn't have to bring them a Messiah to be the ultimate sacrifice. That was all grace. And so out of this knowledge of grace, the Israelites were able to then be motivated to then seek to follow God's law better. To seek sanctification. To seek making their life a pursuit of holiness. And see, much like how that Holy of Holies functioned for the Israelites, so I think it functions for us as Christians. Because when we look at the perfect Lamb of God sacrifice that happened on the Day of Atonement, when Jesus died on the cross, we not only see what was required of us because of our failure to obey, but we can be motivated out of, by the grace of God to pursue a life of holiness. The Bible calls this sanctification. And that pursuit of holiness is precisely why we do a series on the Ten Commandments, right? If we do what many people, but many people believe, called antinomians, if we, if we live this way where we say, well, I'm saved by Jesus, I don't have to worry about following God's law because God's grace has covered all my sin, he'll forgive me so I don't have to do anything. If we have that view, we don't have the view of Christianity that Paul had. Because in Romans 6, Paul says, what shall we say then as Christians? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? 
And Paul in the Greek language offers the most emphatic negative possible. He says, by no means. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? As believers in Jesus Christ, guys, we are people who have died to sin. We mortify sin. We say, no, I don't want sin in my life. I am going to pursue holiness. I am going to understand what the Bible requires me to do, what the law of God says that I am to do, and I am going to do it by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit sanctifying me. Now, we'll never do it perfectly. We'll never do it perfectly. We are going to mess up. Why? Because we have a sinful nature still. There's the two natures warring. As Paul, Paul even himself struggled with this. Paul still sinned, yet he even said, we as Christians need to pursue holiness. We are not to continue in sin so grace may increase. And that's the kind of power that we see when we, even when we understand Jesus. Dying on the cross, we can be motivated by that grace of God saying, Oh God, I'm so thankful that I am saved by Jesus' death and by Jesus' obedience, not my own. Lord, help me then to be more obedient to you in a joyful response to that. That is our duty and our task as Christians. And as we close out this series on the Ten Commandments, this is why we've studied them. So we can know what God requires of us and we can seek to do it. We're going to fail. We're going to mess up. I do it all the time and I know you do too. But we still pursue it. Because that's what we're called to do. Okay? And as we finish this series and we're on to something else, to a different series, don't just forget about the Ten Commandments, right? We want to be thinking about them all the time. We want to think about God's law so that we can honor God by being a people characterized by obedience, but all the while recognizing that we're not saved by that obedience. We're saved by the obedience of Christ. We're saved by Jesus. And we, out of a joyful response, seek to obey Him. Okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we are humbled by our inability to perform the deeds of your law. We can't do it. We, like the people of Israel, make our own golden calves. We violate your commandments every day. We're an unholy people. But Lord, we thank you that even though we were disobedient, there was someone who was obedient. You're you. And Lord, we thank you that you paid the penalty for our sin and you gave us your perfect obedience, your perfect righteousness so that we could be justified before your Father. And Jesus, we pray that as we understand this great truth of the gospel that we're not saved by works, at least we're not saved by our works, or rather we're saved by your works. But Lord, as we recognize this great truth of the gospel, we pray that we wouldn't continue in sin just assuming that grace increases. But Lord, that you would change our hearts and make us more willing to follow your law. Because we want to do this in response to your grace. You didn't have to save us, but you did. Give us the strength, Lord. Give us the passion, the diligence, and the desire to do what you call us to do in your Ten Commandments. Lord, pray that we wouldn't forget these. That we would remember what we talked about in this series. So that we can be a people characterized by the pursuit of being holy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.
Amen.